C'è la luna mezza mare, mamma mia, mamma redare. Welcome everybody to Hollywood Godfather Podcast. We're here doing another great show, and Pat called on one of his great friends and co-authors to join us tonight. Pat, why don't you do us the honor? Oh, first Megan's with us, Pat's with us, and our guest. Pat. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, tonight I have the distinct pleasure, uh, before I introduce him formally, of uh, welcoming to our show Mike Russell. Now, I was contacted uh, 10 years ago to do a book on Mike, who was uh, working undercover with a northern New Jersey mafia crew. Uh, in other words, he was an undercover cop, which turned out to be the title of our book. That's a catchy title, don't you think? That took a while. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, my, my first response is always, well, why is this guy's story unique? Uh, the thousands of other undercover cops who've operated throughout the history of policing, because you know, that's what sells books, being different. I mean, we could use Gianni as an example. When uh, uh, I was asked to help him with his book, uh, we all know Gianni is an interested person who made uh, a, a big splash uh, on the scene, whether it be in private business, in, 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 uh, in the movies, with with the with the mob, uh, it's it's highly likely to say the, the likes of Gianni Russo will never be seen again. And some people say, "Well, thank God for that." But even I think, my mother says that. <laughs> okay, there you go. Now it just brings us to our guest, Mike Russell. Now I asked the same questions uh, of uh, my agent, our agent actually, uh, Frank Wyman. Why is this guy's case so special? So he told me, he said, this guy is unique in the annals of undercover work. And I'll give you an example. He gives me this example of uh, when he was starting out in the business. He was an undercover cop for a while. And he ran afoul of the people that he was working with, not because they uncovered his secret identity, I'm using air quotes here, uh, not because they suspected him of being a cop, but because he pissed somebody off and they figured, eh, what the hell, let's whack the guy, which is the, what the way these guys think. So they lured him into an alley under the pretext of uh, committing a burglary and they shot him in the head. Uh, now this really pissed him off. Uh, he survived, obviously he's here with us tonight. Uh, now the average person after that working in that capacity would quit and say, screw this, they shot me in the head. I'm not doing this anymore, not him. He, all, 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 he, all he did was he was amazed that he had lost his sense of smell and his sense of taste from the bullet going into his head. It hit that part of his brain where he couldn't taste and he couldn't smell. So when he woke up, and this is a story that's been related to me, of course, he said, uh, my God, I have no taste. And his wife said, you have no taste. I married you. What's my excuse? <laughs> and I said, this is the guy who I want to write a book about. So with that introduction, I give you Mike Russell. How you doing, Mike? Uh, great, Pat. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming on, Mike. We heard a lot yes, about thank you. you. Your <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Great to meet you guys. <laughs> uh, uh, Mike, uh, give me a little background. He has been working on and off in a couple of capacity for a variety of law enforcement agencies to include uh, local police, FBI, state troopers for uh, around 30 years off and on. You know, he puts uh, other people who have put uh, a number of years in, in, in undercover work. I did it for a very short period of time. And it's the famous people like uh, Joe Pistone, who worked under the name of Donnie Brasco, was undercover for a couple of years, I think five or six. But it doesn't come close to what Mike accomplished. And his story was so unique that, as I said, I decided to write the book and we, uh, we published the book seven years ago. That said, uh, he's got a lot of stories to tell, uh, not in the least of his, his first undercover operation, which goes to show you, uh, I could say, the, the, the way that these wise guys think or don't think, because he portrayed himself as owning an oil company that delivered uh, home uh, heating oil, 
He didn't own an oil truck. He didn't own any oil. He didn't have an office. He didn't have a freaking business card. Believe him. And they believed him for years to the point where they allowed him to open up an office adjacent to their social club, which he wound up uh, uh, bargaining with uh, video cameras. And he was so successful that they, at the end of this operation, of course, we'll, uh, we'll talk a little further about it. At the end of this operation, approximately, and he can correct me if I got the number wrong, but every one of the wise guys in the crew was 46 wise guys, right, Mike? 48 uh, pled guilty, 54 were arrested, six of them got dead before trial. Wow. Okay, well, that happens. People die, you know? Yeah. But, but not like that. Uh, anyway, everybody pleaded guilty, and that's a testament to his uh, undercover work. Uh, he, he was able to get enough evidence on these people. And that was basically uh, what the book was about from start to finish, how he decimated this crew. Uh, and, you know, we can talk a little bit about that. because uh, This was absolutely fascinating. He had to work his way in to this crew, and he'll tell you a little bit more about who they are. But the way he did it by saving the, uh, the uh, uh, captain of the crew from getting his ass kicked in the street mugging. Tell us a little bit about that, Mike. Uh, yes, the capo was Andy Gerardo, and he was a very elegant-looking white guy in a Spanish neighborhood, Bloomfield Avenue in Newark. Long story short, he shows up in a 7-series Beamer for breakfast, and the muggers took advantage of him. But I was uh, in good shape at the time, 220, and I boxed a lot in my life, so I ended the score for him, and then he took a liking to me. And that's what started it. He, that's he, what started it. He took a liking to me, my size, and the fact that I helped him out. And I wouldn't take no money. But you managed to work your way in, and it was after that. I'm, I'm thinking it was pretty quick. Uh, yeah, it was uh, about three months, and then James Palmieri offered me to store in front of Joe Zara's social club at Ninth and Davenport in North Newark. Wait, which uh, which family was this? Genovese. 195 made members at the time. So that's a small family. Yeah. Who, who were they connected to? Sam the plumber? Yeah. No, the chin. They they were under the oh, chin. Oh, okay. Pat Tony at the time. Yeah. Up in uh, in the Palmer Pat Boyle Tony Salerno. Up in yeah. Genovese family in Harlem. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Okay, so how did you wind up next door? Uh. Jim, James Palmieri offered me they had a vacant store there, and I said, gee, that'd be great for my oil company, even though I didn't have one. I did own the fake oil shirts that I had on. But that's as far as your uh, your undercover legend went. You had shirts. I had shirts. I had uh, uniform shirts. <laughs> yeah, but I, 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 I've been around these guys a lot, Mike. The fact that you stepped in and took care of that guy, that gave you a green light. Yeah, it was, well, it was three of them, and like I said, I was in good shape, and they were small Spanish guys. I took them out with no problem. See, that, that I mean, I've been around this forever. That, that You're, you're carte blanche to them now. <laughs> uh, how many years did you do this operation? Uh, about approximately three. Uh, all the time, they, they, they never questioned the absence of an oil truck, a client calling anything. Nothing. And I was sitting on the sidewalk with them tanning in the summertime. Of course, you don't sell heating oil in the summer in the Northeast, but I was out there. I was there all summer long, just sitting on the sidewalk in my beach chair. Uh, tell us about uh, uh, some of the things you did. I mean, some of this stuff was really wild. I know, I know you, you ran afoul of the Jersey State Police because they screwed up. But uh, give, give, us the, give us the lead into that. Well, about... We were on to a really significant location called the Finish Line Park and Restaurant, okay, on North 6th Street in North North. And uh, all of a sudden, the higher-ups, and in police work, the higher-ups are usually people with no brains. They can pass exams. They don't know street police work. So he, for press reasons, he wanted to pull a raid and showed a significance of this operation before it was even ended, before they arrested anybody. Uh, we came out of that one okay, but uh, it, it was, you know, touch and go there for a little bit because of their 
a lack of knowledge about street police work. Well, they went in too soon. Yeah, they went in, they jumped the gun, and for what reason? To get a couple bookmaking slips? Come on. That's what they got. Marking records? Don't make no sense. Okay, so uh, as I recall from from, uh, the, from the story, from the book, uh, this pissed you off highly, and you decided, well, screw them, I'm going to quit. Absolutely. And uh, I backed out. I said, you know, you guys are amateurs. I, I don't want to get, uh, I've been hurt once already in this lifestyle. Uh, you guys can keep it. I could get a job anywhere, uh, okay, you so know, any type of civilian job. So being shot in the head was okay, but if the cops screw up, it's time to go. Well, That's not correct, only that, uh, they would have took the guys would have took them out. Oh, that, that's a death call. Forget about it. But the way, but the way he managed to, uh, I don't want to use the word extort, but from uh, the, the 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 Jersey State Police were desperate to get him back because they knew they jumped the gun, and there was so much more left to do, and he was uh, the only one that could do it because he had entrenched himself, and it was their fault that he quit. So he said, okay. I'll come back. Take it from there, Mike. And when I came back, it, life was okay for a while. And I just, you know, uh, I never um, say anything to police superiors. I respect them. And that's it. We moved on and I continued to make a successful case. But you made you made a demand. The house. The house. Uh, uh, my, the house. Aunt, my wife and children were relocated to another state. And I demanded they buy me a house. And they bought it. You know, they wanted this case more than anything. How much the was the case worth, value-wise, dollar-wise? The case? For them. I believe they seized uh, RICO seizures, 33 million. No, this is exact, uh, Johnny. They they seized $33 million. RICO so what's the house? You should ask for a car, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, daddy. I should have got a daddy. No, knowing, knowing police work, as I do, they don't go for anything. I mean, they, they bitch when you have an hour extra overtime. I mean, to buy a house for their undercover shows the value of the undercover. I mean, do you know how many hoops they had to jump through to buy a house? Okay, uh, to answer Johnny's question, Pat, to answer Johnny's question, uh, Sal Cetrullo had $1 million in cash in his house. So Hello. that's a significant grab. Hello. That's big. Yeah. And with the One Rico. Yeah, hello. And that's theirs. No questions yeah. asked. Yeah, this was back in 1984. That was still a lot of money. Yep, yep. It's still a lot of money. <laughs> Put it this way. It, it paid for your house and then some. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they paid for the 80 grand for the house, yes. So this case comes to a successful conclusion, uh, obviously, and uh, you were approached by HBO. Uh, yes, I was approached by HBO. Uh, one of your guys, uh, Frank Grimes, used to be a patrolman in New York City and became a reporter for Channel 5 in New York City, WNEW. Yeah. Okay? And he and I got together and put together the documentary. We filmed it live while the case was still ongoing. That's the first, uh, if, if I can interrupt you. Uh, documentaries are usually after the fact. I saw this documentary numerous times. Uh, this case was ongoing. You're ongoing. talking to these guys, and Fox is filming you. But the guys were arrested. No. What? The guys were not arrested. We filmed it live, and then Chris Jeans sat on it uh, for a year or two oh, years. Oh, so nobody saw it, though. Nobody saw it, oh, no. Uh, we were down on... Lower Manhattan on Carmine Street and Bedford Street down there. Yeah, no, well. and we were uh, we were in the he had a townhouse down there, and that's where we put it all together. And then we did all the editing on 14th Street, and I believe that's Union Station or something, Union Square or something. Right. Union Square. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so this documentary, he's uh, I, I've never known Mike Russell to be modest, but he has told you the full scope of this. This this documentary was what year, Mike? Uh, 1985, it, it aired on HBO in 1986, and it aired on HBO until 1991. That's when the rights came back to me. Wow, that's okay. fabulous. Oh, yeah, I mean, I used to watch this thing all the time. I didn't know him at the time, but this, this documentary just kept on playing. I mean, it was, 
and he winds up, uh, you, you wind up going to England and doing all kinds of... I, for the British Central Television, uh, as a result of this documentary, I went over there and redid the documentary. That's where I met your buddy De Niro over there and Michael Keaton. We were in uh, a section of London called Marble Arch. We were all in the same hotel. Oh, they were great. over there filming too. That's perfect. So you were there to promote the documentary? I was there to, to make the documentary, remake it, yes. Bobby oh. must have loved you. You know, he don't say too much, but Michael Keaton was a likable guy. He was a lot of fun. No, but see, Bobby, I mean, I, I've done several projects with Bobby. In fact, there's one out right now where he's portraying me, and it's it's called the Heist Bus 69. He's down to my jewelry. So I was with this guy for nine months, and every once in a while I used to say it, it became a joke. Are you awake, Bobby? Are you awake? <laughs> yeah, that's that's how he is. He's uh, I guess that's what makes him a great actor. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, everybody, even though the people that uh, are involved in, in the life of one form or another, in, in, in law enforcement, or being actively involved with the mob, knows about Jimmy Hoffa. Yes. Uh, Mike was involved with them uh, starting in the 70s. You want to talk about that, Mike? Uh, yes, I I was involved with it with a relative of mine, an in-law from a marriage, uh, uh, Brother Moscato. I can use real names here, right? Huh? Yeah, of course. Okay, all right. And Brother Moscato was a high-level made guy from uh, Jersey City, New Jersey. He introduced me to Anthony Provenzano, who was a capo in the Genovese group. Yeah, Tony. At the time. And I drove uh, Provenzano to a couple of meetings, uh, one over in Brooklyn, one up in uh, Fort Lee, New Jersey. And long story short, they would pay me. And at the time, I had three young kids. So I could, you know, I was only a patrolman at the time, so I needed the money. I took it, you know. And I was just a big, dumb guy with a lot of muscle. End of story. So... And a gun, of course. And uh, after that, um, uh, in 1975, I got a call in the middle of the night to go over to Jersey City. And Brother Moscato said, just stand by. And they threw a 55-gallon drum in a hole. And I said, what am I doing here? I don't know what's going on. And uh, that's all I know. But and later I figured it out, who was in the drum, but whatever. Well, that landfill. What well, that's, was that's another story. <laughs> it was cleaned up in 1995 by the Federal Environmental Act. Well, anything that's but they there, never found the guy. It, anything that's there is long gone, Pat. And um, the at the time, uh, the authorities wanted uh, they they thought he was in the cement down a giant stadium that they were building at the time on Route Three, but the the city, uh, the state of New Jersey said, no way we're digging up anything. We really don't care. Right. As I told you, we didn't investigate organized crime homicides back in those days. We didn't care. Right. So, because they were killing each other, basically. Who cares? Well, how can, how can you feel bad about that? I mean, that's why Nicky Scarfo was such a good friend of mine. He killed 29 guys. Oh. He, we were like how brothers. How did you know Scarfo? What? How did you know him? He used to have to come to Newark to meet with Bobby Manor, who was another Genovese boss, and we got to know him because we would be surveilling the place that was called Triple Sevens in a section of Newark called Down Neck. And uh, that's how I got to know him. What kind of a guy was he? Likeable guy. You'd have liked him. He was, was a, a funny guy. guy. Funny guy. Yeah, Great. he was Yeah, he was a good guy. He was a lot, you know. Except if he didn't like you. Uh, well, number one, he was he was funny to me because he knew who I was. Naturally, we were sitting in the four-door Chevy at the time, two white guys in Newark. Come on, it's not hard yeah. to figure out who we were. Yeah. But if he didn't like you, he, he you know you were you had a problem. Yes. What's your uh, any any stories about the Newark police? Uh, I'd I'd rather walk from that one, Pat. Uh, you know. Yeah, I don't all right. Uh, what are your favorite topics? Okay, this case is over. They're in or whatever. You, you, you're moving on. Now, this is, this is one thing I don't understand. You're, I'm about to ask you about Joe Burke. Yeah. Oh, that Joe Burke came in 2013. That was 20 years later. 
I know that now, but my, well, tell everybody who this guy was. Joe Burke was one of the few left Whitey Bulger guys left over. He was an armored car robber from uh, Charlestown, Boston. He was he was a tough guy. You got a picture of me and him together. I do. And um, he, he was a, a very he came out of jail and uh, one of Joey Merlino's, another Philadelphia boss. I met Joey Merlino in South Florida, and he introduced me to another guy from Philly. Well, I'll only use his first name because this guy got a this guy got a pass, and I don't want no nuisance lawsuits. So, um, but his name is Anthony, and then Anthony brought Joe Burke to me, and that's how this all laid out. He thought Joe Burke thought he was getting an entertainment deal. Mob Cop Productions is nothing but uh, a Facebook uh, entry. It doesn't exist, but People who, believe who, it. Who were you working for? At the time, I was working for the FBI in South Florida. Okay. Now, after the book, our book comes out, and it was successful, you were on a lot of media. Everybody knew you were a, an undercover cop. And still, you, were, you managed to work your way in with these guys. They okay. bought it. They bought it, Pat. I, I I sold them a second floor of a vacant lot, and they bought it. I mean, how did you explain the book away? Oh, that's my media successes. You know, at uh, when I was working the Russians years prior to that, I headlined page six in the New York Post on Sunday, and those guys bought it, too. They actually thought I was in the entertainment business. Well, they thought that the police workers behind you, you had a book, and now you're going into the media business. Now, now I'm a, you know, I'm the next Johnny Carson, up and coming, you know. So, well, uh, what, what, what transpired between you and Burke? Well, I, I met with Burke, and uh, we were in a, a crummy hotel in Fort Lauderdale, and I said, "Geez, I, I could get, I could get a suite in, uh, in the best places out on the beach." <clears throat> but him and Anthony decided to meet back there, and I could think of that scene from Scarface where they're going to chainsaw them guys. I said, "Oh my God, this ain't good." But then we got in there, and he, I had my legal pad with me, my pen, and I started uh, taking notes. And he said he wanted to tell me about the jailhouse crimes he committed. I said, I don't care about that. Tell me about the stuff in Boston. Okay, you so know, he, assumed, I, he assumed that you were going to produce a movie about his life. Absolutely. He, he bought it hook, line, and sinker. Mm. Go ahead. And um, so we had this meeting. I took a lot of notes, and I said, I don't care about the jailhouse stuff. Just tell me, you know, what's going on. And boom, boom, boom. And uh, this is fascinating. They told, uh, Anthony told this story to me and a group of FBI agents in Boston when we were up there. You got the pictures too. <clears throat> they brought, they bought 100,000 oxycodone pills in China, okay? Anthony had it shipped to Albania, okay? Which is clear across the globe. From Albania, they put them in, you know, them collars, people sleeping on planes? Yeah. They brought it back to the United States uh, 10,000 at a time in those collars. Right right through the machines, no problem. Now, that original investment, a $1.15 a pill, was selling for 35 a pill, oxycodone 80s at the time in Boston. Figured a return out on that. I thought that was a sharp, uh, I thought that was a sharp, uh, you know, plan. So, so what, what transpired with, 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 with Burke? Uh, Burke, the end bottom line is he was arrested in two, November of 2015. He pled guilty and took 15 years, and that was it. Wait, uh, was he the guy who, uh, who left his phone on the table and excused himself? No, that was the Russian. Uh, that was the Russian. We were in Hallandale Beach, uh, South Florida, and that was the guy's name was Surgeon. And uh, he said he's going outside for a smoke, and he had at the time iPhones were new he left it recording on a table and I said geez this guy must figure I was born yesterday so uh but I, I never... he was trying to catch you making a call to work right I was trying to alert somebody who was outside I, again you know well, at least at least there was a little suspicion uh as, as compared to Burke you know if, if you if you play these guys egos if you play to anybody's ego you have a much better chance of you know getting what you want so Burke is still in right Burke is in. He, he's, you know, he may come out in ten years, but that's it. So he went in in 2015, uh, December 2015. So he's into 2025 minimum. Yes. 
What, what did they get them on? The Oxycontin or something else? Yeah, and the smuggling and all those charges related because he just, you know, Anthony gave up everything they did, uh, you know, so they still had a lot of the Oxy around in a warehouse in, in South Boston that they were able so to So Anthony gave them up? Well, he Anthony gave us the whole plan, you know. He didn't. He thought he was, you know, and I, yeah, I was involved, Johnny, I was involved with this dumbbell FBI agent there, and Pat's <laughs> got a picture of him. Oh, this guy was dumb as a brick. He was supposed to be their top undercover guy, right? In Boston? Yeah, yeah. But he, yeah, he originally started out in Philadelphia, but he wound up up in Boston. But he, he shows up at the meeting at the Marriott there, and he's wearing this blue blazer. And he says, what do you think of my Armani blazer? I said, you still look like, his name was Mike, too. I said, you still look like a little fat old man with a stupid mustache with a blue blazer on. If it's Armani or not, who cares, you know? <laughs> How are we doing with time? Should we take a break for him? Yeah. Megan? Um, no, we could do like 10 more minutes. Oh, really? Okay, good. Please. Yeah. I just want to make sure we don't okay, lose any of this. Oh, no, this. we're good. We're all good. Mike, did you have to testify? Against two. Uh, Bark? Uh, no, no, he pled guilty. Does he have any idea that you were the, the, the main person that put him away? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Anthony called me up on the phone, right? The next, and he threatened me. And I said, well, I, again, you got to be serious, Anthony. Anthony's the same height as Joey Merlin, five foot four. Come on, give me a break. You know. Is so, that be send somebody that's a little bit taller? Yeah, yeah, please. And, you know, add a hundred pounds onto that. Maybe you'd be significant, but, uh, you know. I had, <laughs> let me clarify something, Mike. I had guys that weighed 110 pounds, and a three-ounce piece of lead equalized that out for a couple of guys <laughs> your size. <laughs> What's that saying? Uh, take the gold or take the lead? Hello. <laughs> Put it into perspective, though. You do cover your tracks. Nobody knows. I mean, I know where you live, but uh, uh, no one knows where you are. Uh, you're retired, basically. I exercise all day and, uh, you know, uh, we, we, it's with my family. I live a nice, calm life. Yes. Yeah, but you aren't in the phone book. Let me put it that way. No, I'm not in the phone book. And I, I, I'm not a bar person. I never drank in my life. I never used narcotics. The only thing I'm guilty of is using a lot of steroids in my life. But who cares? Let me ask you a question, though. With this guy coming out in 10 years, you think he's going to carry a grudge? I don't care. You know, if I took that, you know, I, there would be 48 guys lined up in Jersey that would have come after me. And uh, after that, the Russians would have come after me. So I really don't. No, I'm I'm, a, I'm, I'm like you. I mean, I, I've been threatened by the best of them. I'm still here and they're not. But, well, you uh, know, talking about the Jersey guys, after you put away 48 of these people that pled guilty and, and you you went to their arraignment. And, right. you know, when, when Gianni, uh, when they... When they told these guys that Mike was an undercover cop, nobody believed them. Oh, uh, Joe Zaris told them they were lying, that I was a stand-up guy. Yeah, they, they, they could not believe that he was a police officer until you marched in during arraignment. Right, and, uh, right, uh, they, you know, in fact, they used to take, they used to run big games in the club, and my, uh, my store and their club were connected by a door. So Joe Zara told me he's going to start putting uh, twenty to thirty thousand dollars in my uh, um, desk drawer at night. So in case the cops came in, they couldn't search my place because they would need a social uh, special search warrant. And I said, "Geez, where'd you get your law degree, Yeah, or what?" After this case was over, you went down to Florida, and a lot of these guys were down there, and you ran into them. I ran into them. There's, you know, they nobody wants. Nobody wants nothing to do with me. Uh, like, uh, you know, uh, the oh, gift yeah. that Hello. keeps giving. Uh, are you in touch with any of these people? I'm not in touch with anybody except my family up here, the guys I work out with, and you. So, But, but when you were in Florida, I mean, this wasn't like, I'll see you on the street and that's it. These guys, you knew them from the, from the area. They knew you. Right. 
but I was working for law enforcement down there, Pat. Can you see what this uh, shirt says on your thing? Too low. Too low. Too high. Right. Stand up. <laughs> okay. Can you see what that says? It says Hollywood SWAT, Hollywood PD. I was active in law enforcement down there. Okay, so they wouldn't go near you. What's that? They would, they would not know. That's why. Okay, well, uh, we, we, I, you have a lot more to say. I mean, we, you know, we want to hear, uh, you have so many stories. What do you say we, we, we cut it here? Okay. We'll Good. take a break. Mike, can you do another segment with us, please? Yeah, yeah. How long? How long's the break? No, we're just gonna Johnny? we're just gonna reintroduce you and come back. Coming right okay, back. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna have a sip of water, and I'll be right here. I ain't going nowhere. I'll get a sip Go of right water. Ahead. We'll do it. All right, do it. All right. Okay, we want to thank uh, Mike Russell, and you haven't heard the last of him. He's coming back uh, next week for another segment. Uh, and uh, stay tuned, as they say. Yeah, I mean, glad, thank God nobody put a bullet in his head. But well, the, day, the day is still young. Well, no, no, no. Yeah, that's right. Don't, don't do it on our show. Anyway, we'll be right back. We're going to go to the mailbag. Hi, Patrick Picciarelli here, announcing the release of the second book in the Ray Yale Private Investigator series titled Pop Line. In this outing, Yale journeys to Pennsylvania to help a deceased friend's sister who has been charged with the murder of her police officer husband. An outsider doesn't sit well with the local cops and Pittsburgh organized crime figures, which leads Yale down a treacherous path of deception, murder, and a crime so ingenious that it has never been duplicated in mystery fiction. Popline is available exclusively on Amazon.com. Here we go. It's time for the mailbag. I love this part of the show. I love just going into it, hearing your questions and requests. Yeah, by the way, for the uh, for the listeners who aren't aware of it, we don't know what these emails are going to be. This is you know, completely off the cuff. We Only me. Just, yeah, only only Megan knows, and she doesn't tell us anything. Nope. Uh, so when, when we hear these questions, when you hear these questions for the first time, so do we. No, we love it. We love the spontaneity um, of it. Yeah, let's get into it. So first, I want to share a message that we received over Instagram from John. John says, Gianni, I have to tell you, I read your book and couldn't put it down. The stories are fantastic. I have asked several people who are former mobsters and authors about you, and they all say you are for real and your stories are true. Best mob-type book I have ever read. Because it's a real book and a real <laughs> mobster. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> very nice. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. All right. So next is a message from Daniel with a couple questions. Daniel said, I really enjoyed the excellent book that Gianni and Patrick put together, and the podcast has rapidly become one of my favorites. Your podcast is the listening equivalent of comfort food. It's really enjoyable to listen to the ebb and flow of your conversations and the stories and antidotes that you effortlessly leave in. I think you mean anecdotes that you effortlessly weave in. Here are my questions. Gianni, I thought that the ending of your book was very sad, especially with losing your family as, as a result of going into exile. Nonetheless, you are always buoyant, upbeat, and vibrant when you speak. What is your secret for maintaining a joy-for-life attitude in spite of some of the adversities you've experienced? That's why I do it. The adversities I've experienced, you have to move on or go into a state of depression. You might as well just slit your wrist. Every day is a new day for me, a new experience, and I can't wait to get up. <laughs> Amen, brother. Great. Yeah. All right, next question is for Patrick. Daniel says, I am a retired army officer and would be very curious to hear what unit you served with in Vietnam. Were you drafted or did you enlist? What was the most valuable lesson your time in the army taught you? I enlisted in uh, February of 1965 for lack of anything better to do. I was a high school dropout. I mean, I was, I was aimless. Uh, that said, I figured the army was a good way to go. I spent a year in Korea the uh, south part uh and then uh, i volunteered for vietnam so obviously insanity runs in my family this is uh, <laughs> two 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 volunteering uh moves that i made one to go into the army 
and went to volunteer for Vietnam. And when people ask me why I did that, gee, you must have been awfully patriotic. You must love our country. You must uh, uh, have a flag on your front lawn. No, I wanted to blow shit up. That's why. I, I mean, I, I, I was like 19 years old. You know, we, we don't think. Uh, now with that head anyway. Wow. I was in uh, Charlie Company, uh, 1st Battalion, 16th Infantry of the 1st Infantry Division. May of 66 to May of 67. Wow. And I'm here to tell the story. And what did I get out of it? Uh, I tell everybody this that asks. I, I, I promised myself and a promise I kept. If I survive this, if I get out of this in one piece physically, I'm going to turn my life around. And I did. Um, I went from a high school dropout. I don't want to bore you with all the degrees, but I, today I hold a uh, doctorate. And I, I think I've been pretty successful in life. Uh, and I owe it to Vietnam. I wouldn't want to relive it. But uh, since I, I've already done that, I just uh, decided that uh, life is really worth living. Every day you wake up and you're not in the ground is a great day. Yeah. That's what I got out of it. Inspirational words? Mm-hmm. That's great. All right, next is from Jamie. Patrick, if you had to pick, which one of the books that you've written would be your favorite? Without a doubt, uh, Hollywood Godfather. Oh, there we go. Hey. Yeah, no, I've written, uh, I've collaborated on a, a quite a few books. That's when you get together with the person who actually lived the story and you help them write it. And without a doubt, I mean, I've gotten so much out of this book. First of all, I, I look forward every day to find out what was gonna happen next. And when you deal with somebody like Gianni, who is really good to deal with, I mean, uh, you know, and it just wasn't like, go ahead and do what you wanna do. We actually discussed this book and uh, to, to the, you know, he had a real active part in this. And I, I've, I've written books where people say, ah, just do whatever you wanna do. It wasn't like that with him. This book meant a lot to him. It and if does, it meant a actually. lot to him, it certainly meant a lot to me. And look where it's led. It yeah. led to a friendship. I met you. We have a podcast. We have a good future here. So, I mean, it, that's that question, while I appreciate it, was a no-brainer. Absolutely Hollywood Godfather. Thank you. I appreciate that, too. Oh, and I appreciate my, you, whoever answers heart, that question. <laughs> from my heart. Thank you. That's sweet. All right, so next is from Jordan. Gianni, this might be a difficult question, but who is your favorite mobster of all time? I would have to say Frank Costello. And then after him, I mean, Carlo Gambino was like a grandfather figure. I really had no interacting with him. But, I mean, as far as being around somebody, the amount of years and time I was, I'd have to say Costello. Hmm. And he's a gentleman. Also, oh, go ahead. He was a gentleman's gentleman. Oh, yeah. And he also asked, Patrick, how about you? That's a, that's a tough question. You know, Gianni had a lot more in-depth relationships with these people. Mm -hmm. And I didn't. I'll tell you uh, one story about a gangster who probably saved my job on a police department. Okay. Uh, I was out drinking one night. Gee, that's odd. Uh, it, was after, it was after a 4 to 12 tour, and I was going out with this, uh, uh, with this woman who worked in a restaurant somewhere. Anyway, we all went to a place on 2nd Avenue, right by the Manhattan end of the Midtown Tunnel. I forget the name of the place. It was a corner bar, and we continued to drink. And in that bar was a bunch of wise guys, including Alley Boy. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, it, and we were all we were all in, in, in a group. He knew who I was. I knew who he was. And everybody, you know, this isn't like a movie. You know, people are people. But let me, let me just time, let our audience know laugh. who Alaboy anyway, was. I go into the bathroom. I guess not. And I had my gun because we have to. At those days, you had to carry a gun 24-7. As a police officer in NYPD today, you don't. It's optional. But then it was mandatory. And I took off my gun, put it on a toilet seat and left and uh, went to everybody. And it was getting late, the bar was, the bar was gonna close, it was like 3.30. And I bid everybody a good night, went through the tunnel, went home, I lived in Jackson Heights, Queens. There were, there were no cell phones back then. I get home and the phone is ringing. And uh, I don't know how I made it home. And I, I'm embarrassed to say I, 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 I drove under the influence. Hmm. Uh, 
And this alley boy, the woman that I was seeing, gave him my phone number. And he says, you forget something. <laughs> and I'm going, I don't know. And, you know, my elbow hit an empty holster. Wow. And let me tell you something. I sobered up in like five seconds. Yeah. Adrenaline. Not able to put the key in the door to stone cold sober. I said, holy, oh, my God. He said, I got it here. I'm, we're going to keep the bar open for you. Come back, take your time. Don't hit anybody. <laughs> so yeah. I went back, and he, he gave me my off-duty gun. Well, let people know who Alley Boy is, man. Pardon me? The audience don't know who Alley Boy is. Let them know. Alley Boy Persico. Hello. Big, big, big time uh, Major gangster. Guy. Huge. His, his father was Carmine the Snake Persico. Who passed away uh, not too uh, recently, yeah. uh, not too uh, you're, you're uh, well, like three, four months ago. But he was a big deal then. This was probably 85, 86. Oh, my God. It's huge. Huge. And we got along that night with, you know, everybody's laughing, telling jokes. And I tell you, he could have he, he could have taken that gun and say, screw this guy. Oh, Lord. Yeah, right. yeah. And that would have been, I tell you, you know what? It would have it cost me uh, the, uh, the... Your job, the, 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 this, the, no, the, 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 oh, the, no, the standard fine back then was uh, for uh, not securing your weapon, it's called. People lose their guns. Well, let me ask happens. you a question. If they it used it on it a it hit... It would have cost me uh, 30 days. But if they uh, used your gun on a hit... Uh, well, then it would have been uh, <laughs> some explaining. It would have been yeah. a little bit messy. Yeah, but anyway, that's one. I'm surprised. You know, we have 80 episodes in the can. I, I never told this story. No, that's wild. Yeah, yeah wild story, man. That is wild. There's good in everybody. I understand yeah. Hitler like dogs. You know, I mean, yeah. everybody has a good side. Right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next one is from Jenny. Gianni, how many awards shows have you attended? What was the experience like during the era of The Godfather? Well, obviously, being at the Academy Awards in 1972, and you win three or four Oscars, how could you not? It's great. I mean, going to them, if you were, and also in Cannes Film Festival, I was nominated as Most Promising Newcomer, and male and female, I think I mentioned this before, and I lost to Diana Ross, and, you know, I got nine Grammys with my relationship through, through the business called December 12th with Dionne Warwick, Sinatra, and myself. And, you know, we won a Grammy for That's What Friends Are For. I mean, I just love, love the life. And to have these accolades, and it's, it's, there's no way to explain it. It's a great adrenaline. It's a great night. And, uh, I'm sure it's very fun. What a rush. We're not done yet. We're going to be winning more. Uh, all right. Next one is from Tina. Gianni, what is your favorite takeout joint in NYC? I am in need of new suggestions. Favorite takeout? Well, of late, they're all takeout. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Every restaurant. <laughs> I mean, I would I mean, seriously have to say, and I've been eating there for years and years, any of the Serafinas, it's not greatly expensive. It's unbelievable food. I think there's six or seven in New, in New York itself. They deliver. What's the closest one to you? Serafina. Where oh, is it to you? Closest, it's on 61st Street, right down the block between Park and Madison. All right. One of the original where, ones. What's that place where we get the pizza and spinach rolls from? Oh, that's fabulous. That's uh, Tony. Oh, I forgot about him. Louis and Tony's on 61st. Pizza. That's amazing. Can't leave them out. Yeah. Grandma's pizza. No, he, oh, he, he the guy cooks anything. It's perfect. All right. Next one is from Dennis. Patrick, what was the experience like collaborating with Johnny Gianni on Hollywood Godfather compared with other people you have written with? It sucked. The worst experience I've ever had in my life. <laughs> no, no, it's a, you know, when when, when you collaborate on, on a on a book. Yeah, uh, my attitude is I'm writing a, a person's life story, and it's it's a big deal, you know. So you have to approach it with that. Uh, that said, some of the people that I dealt with over the years, I mean, I have stopped writing books after three or four chapters because I could not deal with the people, oh, the well. egos, which they 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 let fly, but just uh, the orders they were giving you know, were just, you know, you you can't say this; it's going to make me look bad. But yes, but it's true. 
you know, with with with, uh, with Gianni, he let all the the, the warts out and uh, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything, and that's that's what makes me do a better job. Yeah. So uh, it's most of the people uh, uh, I, I had a, a, a pleasant experience with. With Gianni, it was uh, it was extraordinary. It was, and and you know the, the windup of it is, if you have an experience like this, the product. Is the end result? Yeah, it reveals it. Yeah, absolutely. It does. Yeah. And thank you. Oh, you're quite welcome. Absolutely Great. true. Yeah. All right. Next is from Jane. Johnny, what can you tell us about your experience filming Harvard Man? Harvard Man. That was a great. I, I why I liked it. We shot it in Canada, and uh, the the only bad experience I had out of that movie. Was this kid got an attitude? This Andre, whatever his name was, became a big star. He would Andre he, Hope. The storyline: he he was dating my daughter, and my daughter, they thought it was me, was setting up all these college basketball teams, so these kids would throw the game, and they were watching me for doing it. It was my daughter doing it, and that was she was played by. Um, oh Jesus, uh, my daughter, my daughter, real daughter Gia when. In business with a um, Michelle Sarah, Sarah Michelle Geller, yeah, fabulous. No, yeah, yeah, that's it. Great, great, great movie though, Harvard Man. All right, next is from George. George says, Gianni, I've wondered what it would be like living your life and interacting with so many fascinating people. How have you been able to remember all these stories, places, and names? Both your mental and physical health seem to be in great shape. God bless. Thank God. And I'm keeping it that way. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the excitement of the experiences I've had, they're hard to forget. You can't forget them. I mean, they're so unique. And just a word will trigger my memory. And, and what Pat said earlier, we had notes, and he'd say something, and I'd run for a half hour talking about it. You know, also, when you write books like this, uh, sometimes you have to pull teeth to get stories out of people that you can put in the book, but those we had too many. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, we well, this, I can't say too many. That's a, that's a bad way to put it. We had more than enough, and we could pick the cream. So yeah. no one's led a life like this. I mean, to fill up uh, what three hundred odd pages, right. and it never stops. But when you have the experience that I've had writing other books uh, like this, people's people's uh, uh, stories. I mean, I can tell you things that I I, re that I really can't say about some of the things I had to do to complete books about people that, uh, so the, the real life memories obviously stick with you. Right. Uh, if, if they're true and they're exciting, you never forget them. Right, Johnny? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the last one for tonight is from Colleen. Colleen said, Gianni, how did you and James Kahn film the infamous fight scene without the two of you getting hurt? <laughs> well, the two of us didn't get hurt. I did. <laughs> One of us got hurt. I chipped my elbow, and he broke two ribs on me. I got hurt. So would that have taken, so you guys, it was one day when you filmed that scene? No, we choreographed it for two days on location. Then right. we went in and did it in one day, which we should have been able to do easily. Came, that scene that we see, you came out of that injured. Very injured. Oh my Very God. injured. In fact, uh, the beginning of the scene, he threw that uh, bat at me. That wasn't even in the rehearsals. He got very creative. And you ducked at it. Great. I, I didn't duck at it. I got hit on the head behind the car. It looked like I ducked. I went down. Oh, they, yeah. they, they came, they Duncan. checked my head. And I was bleeding. I said, no, and I didn't know it was my first movie. And they said, you want to go on? I said, of course, let's keep going. So, unfortunately, they picked it up, me coming and running from behind the car. So I just came down the stoop, and he threw the bat and hit me. So it looked like I ducked. I didn't duck. And then yeah. they picked it up from that, and then we ran to the garbage bales. And even there, I had padding on my elbows, but he was hitting me so hard with those steel old garbage bales, he chipped my elbow. And then I had to look forward to crawling out and going to the fire hydrant where I know he drop kicks me. And he lifted me up. And I was supposed to, he was supposed to just touch me, I react to it and roll over. 
he lifted. And that's where he broke your ribs. Yep. Yep. And if you, if you, the listeners want to find out, you don't already know why he did that. Got to read the book. Yeah, read the book. You'll know why he did it. Absolutely. A good plug. Well, that was a great ending. And if, <laughs> and if you don't know the book, it's Hollywood Godfather. My life, my life the in the movies and the mob. mob. There we go. Well, another great show. Pat, Mike was phenomenal. Good, I, thank I, you. I can't believe all, all the people thank we talked about. But uh, we'll see you all again next week, or hear you all, or you hear us. <laughs> we need the reviews. We need all of you just to keep building this up so we stay on. We love the accolades, and we love the mailbag. So until then, Pat, Megan, have a great weekend. Good night, Johnny. Good night, Megan. Good night. Good night. If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be wrong. Or when it seems your friends desert you. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Regarding Gianni's motivational speaking appearances, you can visit his website, giannirusso.com. You can also visit amazon.com for a listing of books Patrick Picciarelli has written. Remember to follow us on Instagram at hollywoodgodfatherpodcast as well as leave us a review on iTunes. If you'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your emails and voicemails. Good night. Hi, Patrick Picciarelli here, announcing the release of the second book in the Ray Yale Private Investigator series titled Pop Line. In this outing, Yale journeys to Pennsylvania to help a deceased friend's sister who has been charged with the murder of her police officer husband. An outsider doesn't sit well with the local cops and Pittsburgh organized crime figures, which leads Yale down a treacherous path of deception, murder, and a crime so ingenious that it has never been duplicated in mystery fiction. Popline is available exclusively on Amazon.com.